Welcome back to our continuing walk through the Psalms here at Disciple Dojo. This week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 7, the Psalm that Charles Spurgeon had dubbed the Song of the Slandered Saint. Now, for those who don't know, we have been going through the Psalms, starting at Psalm 1, and we have an ongoing playlist here on the channel. So sometimes you see videos from Disciple Dojo just as they pop up in your YouTube feed. Do me a favor, go to our main channel page, Click subscribe if you haven't already, that really helps us out. But then click the playlist tab and look at the different playlists we have. When people ask questions about, hey, have you done a video on XYZ? A lot of times you can find those in the different playlists, whether it's books of the Bible that we've taught through, whether it's study Bible reviews, episodes of Superhero Seminary, which is why I'm surrounded by all these action figures, or interviews with biblical scholars. All of those are curated here on the channel in different playlists. So take a look at those, poke around, see what all is available here at Disciple Dojo. And if you like it and you want to support us, this is a nonprofit teaching ministry. We rely on monthly Disciple Dojo donors. That's how we're able to make all of our teaching resources freely available online. So consider doing that if you appreciate this ministry or just clicking subscribe and the notifications icon. Those are two of the most tangible ways you can support Disciple Dojo. All right, let's look at Psalm 7. Now, first, I'm just going to read it straight through in the older edition of the NIV. And then we're going to look at the actual Hebrew text and we're going to walk through and see how different translations handle different passages. Psalm 7, a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's guilt on my hands, if I've done evil to him who is at peace with me or without cause have robbed my foe, then let the enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you. Rule over them from on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. According to my integrity, O Most High, O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is God Most High who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. He who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he's made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. We've said this before, no matter how gifted you are, you can't fully render poetry from one language into equally good poetry in another language. It just doesn't work. And the Psalms, as we've said all along, they are songs. So they're not meant to tell a narrative story. They're not meant to lay out propositional truth. They're meant to express the heart of the psalmist and give us the chance to listen in to someone crying out to God and provide us with words, with a vocabulary that we then can use to cry out to God when we face situations that are comparable. And so in this case, this psalm is, regardless of the specifics, it has to do with someone who is being slandered, who is being accused of something and who is declaring in no uncertain terms, no, I am innocent of that. 
Now, before we look at the specifics of this psalm, it's important to understand kind of the general setting of what's going on. In the book of 1 Kings, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he prays this long prayer. And in the middle of this prayer, and it's easy to gloss over because, I mean, it's just a long chapter. But in this prayer, this is the dedication of the temple. And then look at this, verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and he pronounces an oath against him to curse him, and the curse comes before your altar in this house, then you shall hear in heaven, and you shall act, and you shall judge your servant to declare the wicked guilty by bringing his way upon his head, and to declare the righteous innocent by rewarding him according to his righteousness. And you see this in the Hebrew of this passage, and declaring righteous the righteous one, this is the word, Sadiq, to give to him, Kasid Katho, according to his righteousness. So the only reason that I'm mentioning this before we jump into the psalm is because this language of righteousness and according to my righteousness, we sometimes think of that like in a later theological, you know, Augustinian, Lutheran, Calvinist view of justification, of righteousness, of all of this. No. In the Psalms, it's the language of guilt or innocence in a legal setting, in an oath setting. And we see a prime example of this here in 1 Kings chapter 8. So declaring yourself innocent before God and being asked for judgment according to your righteousness means being exonerated from false charges. That's what the language connotes. It doesn't have anything to do with sinlessness or righteousness in the generic sense. So the language of David asking God, judge me according to my righteousness, shouldn't make us think that David is claiming to be some paragon of virtue. He's making a very specific plea to God in prayer, which is basically exonerate me publicly, vindicate me from these false charges which is why Spurgeon called this a psalm of the slandered saint. So with that in mind, let's jump to Psalm 7 and let's walk through it. So it starts off as a shigayon le David. And this word shigayon, we don't know what it means. And most interpreters that I've read, they may take a guess. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. And you can see that in how the different translations handle it. They just transliterate, like some English Bible just transliterates it. Even the King James just transliterated it. Tanakh, JPS. Now the Septuagint, the Greek translation back before the time of Jesus, they translated it with this word psalmos. And so you have in the English Septuagint, a Psalm of David. But there's nothing specific. So we shouldn't try to read in any kind of esoteric meaning or try to make some Hebrew point. I've heard some charismatic worship leaders try to talk about what a Shigayon was and they, they don't know. They're just making it up. I mean, the, the word is used, I think, one other time. I think in Habakkuk it's used, but we don't know what it means. And so that's why the translators are wise to leave it untranslated. So whatever this is, it is a Shigayon for David or to David. We've talked about this before. Le David can mean for, can mean to, it can mean by David, which he sang to Yahweh, La Adonai, concerning and literally upon the word or upon the matter of. And some people say this means upon the matter of Cush the Benjaminite, but literally it's al divrei upon the word of. Now that is a grammatical figure of speech, upon the words of is how you would just say about the thing concerning or something like that. But since this is a psalm about people saying false things about this person, 
I actually think it's better to render this pretty literally and keep it how it is upon the words of Cush the Benjaminite. But different English translations just say, like LEB, on account of Cush the Benjaminite. King James keeps it literal concerning the words of Cush. JPS and Tanakh both just say concerning Cush a Benjaminite. Septuagint kept it literal concerning the words of. So it doesn't make a huge difference, but if this is a song about someone rejecting false charges and asking God to vindicate them, then it's telling us that this Cush the Benjaminite, whoever this is, was saying things, was slandering the psalmist. Now, we don't know of a specific Benjaminite named Cush. Some have said this is actually an oblique reference to Saul because Saul was a Benjaminite and he was the son of Kish. And so this is should be translated not Cush with a U sound, but Kish. And it's, a, you know, a roundabout way of naming Saul as the slanderer. But Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin were no fans of David. David was the usurper of Saul in their eyes. And so Benjaminites like Shimei slandered David and even chased him out of town, literally throwing rocks and insults at him. That's what some of the earlier Psalms that we've looked at in this series were actually about. So Cush just could be a Benjaminite who was going around slandering the psalmist, in this case, if it's David, slandering David and spreading false rumors and false reports about him and drumming up opposition among his fellow Benjaminites and among Israel in general. But regardless, what's going to be said in the psalm is more important than the actual, like trying to pin it down to a particular situation, because these words can and have been applied by many people praying when they've been faced with people slandering and opposing them. And so it begins verse two, verse one in English translations, because again, English translations typically set the title of the psalm as a not a verse. So you could say verse zero, and they start verse one with what is in the Hebrew and the Septuagint text verse Verse two. I still don't know why that decision was made. Not a fan of it, but I will go with the English numbers when I'm talking about the English text. So it starts off, Yahweh, my God, in you, I take refuge or in you, I hide myself in you. I run for safety in you. I take cover. So he's save me and deliver me. These two verbs, save me. And this is the word, Hoshieni. We've seen this before in previous Psalms. This is the verb from which Yeshua comes, the verb to save. You know, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he's saying, Hoshieni, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. This verb, Natsal, to deliver, to rescue. And then in a super graphic image you have here, verse three, lest... He taraf, this word to, to, to rip apart, to tear like a lion, my, and this is the word nafshi, my soul or my life. But the word nefesh, soul and life literally means throat. Like that, every time you see the word soul in the Bible, nefesh, the Hebrew word for soul, it's literally the word throat. And, and what do lions do when a lion attacks prey? How does a lion usually kill its prey? It usually goes for the throat, crushes the throat, suffocates or chokes or just breaks the neck or what. A lion usually attacks the throat. And so this is, that's what this is an image of. Save me from them, lest he tear apart like a lion, my soul, myself, me, but in a true literal sense, my throat ripping and there's no one to deliver 
or there is no deliverer. This is the same verb from this verb up here. So God, if you don't save me, these lions are going to tear me apart. They're going to rip me apart because there's no deliverer. You're my only deliverer. So I'm crying out to you. That's the image that the lyrics of this song are presenting. Hard to bring all that out in English, but you see some of these attempts, like some English, or else he will tear me apart like a lion, rip into pieces with none to deliver. The Tanakh, lest like a lion, they tear me apart, rending in pieces and no one save me. And the Greek Septuagint translated it, lest he snatch my soul as a lion while there is no one to redeem nor save. And then Eugene Peterson really brings out the, the predator prey image. If they catch me, I'm finished. Ripped to shreds by foes fierce as lions, dragged into the forest and left unlooked for, unremembered. And so now we come to verse three. This is where that passage from First Kings 8 should come to mind. Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my palm, literally, if we would say if I have blood on my hands, but it's if there is evil, injustice, wickedness, bekafai, in my palm. In other words, that's the parallel to if I have done this. And whatever the this is, we don't know what the psalmist has been declared to have done. And that's part of the beauty of this song is it can fit different situations when used as a prayer of anyone who is falsely accused of something. And so whatever Cush the Benjaminites' words were that David is denouncing or refuting, this is done in the language of someone coming before the presence of God in the tabernacle or later after Solomon in the temple and declaring their innocence and pleading for vindication from God. So if I've done this, if there's injustice in my hands, Gamalti, I have done, or I have shown, or I have treated. Sholomi, well, this is a participle, so one who is blanking, whatever the verb is. In this case, the verb is to make peace. Shalom, it's where the word shalom comes from. Sholem, one making peace, and then e, there's that e ending with me. So if I have shown or I have treated one making peace with me, ra, bad, wicked evil. Or I have, and this verb, uh, which is a form of the verb chalatz, can mean to pull out, like to, to pull something out of somewhere. And so in the sense, it can mean to rob, like to steal, to despoil, or pull out in a good sense, like rescue. So, or I have rescued, or I have pulled out sorari. We've seen this word before, sorari, the word for my enemies. Sorari, my enemy, rekam. And this just means in futility or without cause. It's just an adverb, emptily or in emptiness. So in the Hebrew text, this is a hard verse to render. And some have even said this doesn't make any sense, that the psalmist wouldn't rescue their foe. They would do something else against their foe. And so this means if I have spoiled or robbed my foe, the one who's accusing me, the one who's opposing me, without cause. And so here are how all the different translations handle it. Lexham English, if I have repaid my ally with harm, or if I have plundered my enemy without cause. So they take it as plundered. King James, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy. So it's taking it in the positive sense of to deliver, to pull out in a good way. And the 
without cause is not describing the action of delivering, but it's describing the reason for the person being the enemy. These are two completely acceptable ways to deal with the very strange Hebrew of this passage. JPS, if I have requited him that did evil unto me or spoiled mine adversary unto emptiness. So JPS is taking this rakam as I've robbed them until there's nothing left. But then the Tanakh, another Jewish translation, if I have dealt evil to my ally, I who rescued my foe without reward. So it's taking it in the positive sense. I rescued my foe emptily for, for nothing. I didn't even seek a reward and I rescued not just my ally, but my foe. And then the Septuagint has a very different reading. If I returned evil to those repaying good to me, may I then perish empty from my enemies. So they're taking this, may I then perish, this argues that the original verb was something other than this verb chalatz. Whatever this was, it, it had another meaning. Or possibly that this is a textual corruption. So as for which of these readings is the right reading, this is when you would have to go to the commentaries and you have to weigh the arguments. Like for instance, Rolf Jacobson in the New International Commentary, he agrees with Jeffrey Teague, Jewish interpreter, who's, they think this, this is a textual corruption. The last phrase in the psalmist conditional denial is textually corrupt. As it stands, the text reads, if I have delivered my enemy without cause, which is, in Teague's words, a monstrosity. It makes rescuing one's enemy a sin. And so what Jacobson says instead, he says, actually, it's better to understand this verb chalatz as an example of letter confusion, where letters in a word accidentally get transposed. And in this case, he says it's likely that the original reading was lachatz, not halatz, but lachatz, just switch two letters. And that verb, lachatz, means to oppress or to torment. And so it would be, if I have tormented my enemy without cause. This is possible. Letter confusion happens. We see it throughout scripture. There are places where you just switch two letters and you have a different word and you can actually make better sense of the text if you're like, oh, this is probably a letter switch. That is known to happen, but it's not definite. You can't say, oh, that's what is the case here. This is one of those verses where we have to hold our translation loosely, recognizing all the different ways that very competent translators, Jews and Christians, throughout the centuries, going all the way back to the Septuagint, have tried to render this passage. So regardless, the psalmist is saying, if I have done this, what I am accused of having done, then verse five, may an enemy pursue my soul. And here's the word again, nafshi, nefesh, my life, my soul, my throat. And may he trample to the earth my life. This is what predatory beasts do to their prey. They pursue, they catch, they trample, stomp to the ground, and they kill. So that may very well be the image that's being carried over into this self-imprecatory oath. If I have done this, what I'm being accused of, then may this predatory enemy pursuing me and wanting to rip me apart like a lion, may they succeed. May he trample to the earth my life and my glory to the dust may it sit or may it dwell. So this is like kind of the worst, in an honor-shame culture, the worst thing that can happen is your glory, your kavod, be brought down to the dirt, literally. Let afar, to the dust, may it dwell. And the old JPS puts it well. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and tread my life down to the earth. Yea, let him lay my glory in the dust. 
or the CSB wanting to bring out the honor shame imagery. May an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. And then it ends with the Selah, which is either a musical term or a note to pause or again, left untranslated by most translations. So the psalmist has done just like in 1 Kings 8, has brought his plea before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords in his house and is saying, if I've done this, then may this happen to me. But the psalmist knows that they haven't done it. That's why this is the psalm of a slandered saint, not a psalm of repentance. And so the psalmist pleads with God, verse six, arise Yahweh in your anger, lift yourself against the rages of my foes. So now you come to an imprecatory aspect of the psalm. The psalmist is saying, look, my foes, they are raging against me. That's why he's portrayed them as ravenous beasts. And whether it's just their slander or whether it's their slander and their actual physical intention to harm him, either way, they're raging against him. But he's praying that God return on the enemy what the enemy is seeking to do to him. So arise in your anger, Yahweh, lift yourself against the rages of my foes and wake up to me. Get up, rouse up, get, wake up. Like God, I need justice and you seem to be asleep. So wake up and bring justice because mishpat sevita, justice you have commanded. And the psalmist isn't asking God to give him like some private sense of assurance. He's asking for public vindication. He goes on, verse 8, verse 7 in English, let a congregation of nations surround you. In other words, gather everybody, all the peoples, assemble everyone, and above her to a high place return. Like wake up, step back on your seat of judgment where you are enthroned above all the nations of the earth and you are gathering all of the sons of God, the divine council or the kings of the earth, whatever you think of that view, whatever that is, gather everyone, make this public and universal, this judgment that I'm asking you to give. That's what God is the ultimate judge. He's the one who is going to judge the earth. So Shofatani, judge me, Adonai. Katsidki, according to my righteousness and according to, to me, my wholeness, my completeness. It's the word that sometimes means perfection, but it has to do with like the sacrificial animals being without blemish. So they had to be whole. They had to be complete. Again, not talking about moral perfection. If this is being written and prayed by David, he has no claim to moral perfection. But in the case of the slander that's being directed against him, he's saying, judge me according to my uprightness and my wholeness, my, the completeness that's upon me in this case. In the matter at hand, he is unblemished. And then I love this next line, verse 9, 10 in Hebrew. He says, Yigmarna ra rushaim. Literally, let it end, please, or bring to an end, please, the evil ra of rushaim, the wicked or the evildoers, the evil of the evildoers, the wickedness of the wicked. Let it end, please. Bring it to an end. And you will establish, you will uphold tzaddik, the righteous, or it could be a righteous one. That's what God does. That's what justice is. That's what judgment is. Bringing evil to an end and upholding, establishing the righteous, the innocent. And it goes on. And literally it says, and examining 
hearts and kidneys. Now, this is an idiom. This is a Hebrew figure of speech. Examining hearts and kidneys, we would say knowing or searching the heart and inwardness. We might say heart and mind, but the phrase and he, like even heart, I mean, think about it. Like your heart doesn't feel anything other than blood pumping, but in English, heart is an idiom. Like we literally have a literal heart, but when we say in English, you know, you search my heart, we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood. We're talking about my inner self, my emotional being, whatever. That's a way that English uses an organ to describe something that's actually an emotion. Well, Hebrew does the same thing and it does it with heart and it also does it with kidney. Now we think kidneys, that's what does kidneys have to do? Well, I don't know, but we say things like, oh, I feel it in my guts. So this is just an example where a phrase in Hebrew examining hearts and kidneys, we would say in English, one who searches the heart and mind or knows your innermost parts. That's the type of God he's appealing to, the God who knows that he's righteous. In fact, he is Elohim Tzadik, God of the righteous. And because of that, the psalmist declares, my shield is upon God, savior of the upright of heart. Now, a couple of things to note. This is an awkward phrase in Hebrew. Magini. We've heard before in some of the previous Psalms we looked at, God is my shield. My, my magen. Magen is the word for shield. But this phrase says my shield. You would expect it to say my shield is God. But it says my shield upon God. And so some have wondered what's going on there. It could just be a poetic expression. Some have suggested what it what he's saying would be the shield, the thing that protects me is on God. Like God is wearing my shield. In other words, God is shielding me. And that this is just a poetic way of saying that. It may be true. I don't know. With poetry, again, we have to be content with not having precision in language sometimes. But the general sense is that God, just like in previous Psalms, God is his shield. And he is the Savior, Moshiach. That should sound familiar because this is from, again, the verb to save, Yasha, which is where Yeshua, the name Jesus, comes from. The Savior of the upright of heart. And because God is the savior of the upright of heart, verse 11, 12 in Hebrew, God judge of the righteous. And then this strange line, literally, and a God cursing or pronouncing a curse or, or imprecating. That's how I've used this word to, to speak words that are going to bring about something bad. A God who does that, who is doing that as a participle in all the day. So this could be all day long, we might say in English. The NIV takes this as every day, but literally it's in all the day. But that's not how the Septuagint translates this verse. Septuagint handles this a bit differently. Look at the difference. Septuagint says, God, a righteous judge, kai eskuros kai makrothumas. And this is a clause that's nowhere in the Hebrew. It says, eskuros, strong and patient and long-suffering. This phrase, wherever it's coming from, is not reflected in the Masoretic Hebrew text. Did the Hebrew text originally say you're not just a Elohim Shofek Sadiq, a righteous judge? Was there also another clause right here originally in the Hebrew that said powerful and patient or strong and long suffering or something like that? Don't know, but that's what the Greek translators have. And then for where Hebrew says, and a God cursing or, or pronouncing doom all day long, the Greek says, not 
bringing or gain, the word for wrath, not bringing wrath according to every day. So the Septuagint actually says the opposite. Like you're a God who is long-suffering and strong and is not bringing wrath every day. But the Hebrew text says, and the Tanakh does it as good as any, God vindicates the righteous, God pronounces doom each day. And that's what the English translations all pretty much go with. So it's like the Septuagint is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's not a God who is known for his wrath and his anger all day. He's known for his patience and his long suffering and his strength. And, you know, kind of hearkening back to when God revealed his name to Moses in Exodus. So the Septuagint presents God as that, like he judges, but he doesn't do it all the time, meaning that his judgment is part of his role as a judge, but he's not just this wildly angry judge. The Hebrew text, and that may be a case where the Septuagint translators were trying to like soften it a little bit to protect God's reputation or to bring it in line with God's revelation and exodus of his name. But I think the Hebrew text, as it stands on its own, is makes just as good sense. The psalmist is appealing to God. God, you are the judge of the righteous and a God who imprecates, like who pronounce what, what does a judge do the judge pronounces a sentence well for someone who's falsely accused pronouncing a sentence is joyous because they're publicly vindicating you and for the accuser the false accuser a declaration of vindication of the innocent meant that the penalty that would have gone to them goes to the one who falsely accused them so if you're innocent a judge's sentence, banging the gavel, is the most welcome sound in the world. So you see defendants in a court, they just sigh with relief when they're declared innocent and the judge bangs the gavel and it's just like, finally, I am legally and publicly vindicated. When the judge bangs the gavel and declares guilty, you see people sometimes just collapse. Sometimes they cry out. Sometimes like in the crazy viral video from this past month, they like jump over the bench at the judge, like launching at them because they are found guilty. And if God is the righteous judge, then he is doing that every day. He's defending the innocent and vindicating the innocent, and he's imprecating, he's condemning, he's ruling against those who are guilty. So I don't really see a problem with the Hebrew text as it is, as long as we understand Zoaim as God rendering a verdict or imprecating, speaking what will have negative consequences to the wicked. That's the key. It's not just this is what God speaks to everyone, but it's what God speaks in response to people who are attacking the righteous. Now, verse 12, 13 in Hebrew, there's some division on this because we don't know who's being talked about. It literally just says, if he does not turn, Yashuv, to, that can either mean turn or it can mean return, like repent. If he does not turn, his sword he will sharpen, his bow he will tread, and that literally means to walk on, Derek. And it's the image is, how do you string a bow? Well, you step on it to bend the bow, and then you can make the string. That's literally the image going on here. He, His bow, his kesheth, his bow, he will step on and establish. In other words, this is just the phrase, figure of speech for how you string a bow. So you could say he'll string his bow and make it ready, or he'll string his bow and take aim. And to him is established kali maveth, tools or implements of death. His arrows burning he will make. 
In other words, he will like literally light his arrows on fire. Like you're going to shoot burning arrows into a city if you're besieging it. Or it could just be a figure of speech like fiery arrows or flaming darts. Either way, this is battle imagery. Sharpening the sword, bending the bow, prepping the arrows. Now the question is, who is this talking about? Some translations basically have God as the person being talking about. Now the image is switched from God as the judge to God as the executioner or God as the conqueror, God as the warrior. And that fits with multiple places in the Bible where God is a warrior arrayed for battle. Maybe that's what's going on here. Others have said, no, this never says God. And this is phraseology that's talking about the pursuers the attackers, the one who this whole slander case is being pleaded against. If the enemy keeps doing what they're going to do, then they're going to continue getting ready for battle. The problem is we don't know who the he is, the pronouns that are used throughout. So the different translations, King James, if he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. King James doesn't weigh in on who it is. JPS does though. If a man turn not, then God will wet his sword and, you know, and God's going to be the one that will go into battle against the enemy. But the Tanakh translates it as if one does not turn back, but wets his sword, bends his bow and aims it. So it's talking about a person just going headlong, prepping for battle, getting ready to continue their attack. If they don't turn back and the Holman Christian standard, if anyone does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. But the CSB, the update of the Holman Christian, stepped it back a little bit, took a more neutral stance. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. And they didn't capitalize he. And so you don't, they're just leaving it ambiguous. But the RSV and RSV, ESV, they all have God as the one wetting the sword. Now, Calvin actually read this. John Calvin actually read this as not God sharpening his sword, but he read it as talking about the enemy. And he says, there is implied in the words a kind of irony when he pretends to be afraid of their putting him to death. In other words, he's saying that the psalmist is like, ooh, they're sharpening their sword, you know, that kind of thing. He says, they mean the same thing as if he had said, if my enemy do not alter his purpose or turn his fury and his strength in another direction, who can preserve me from perishing by his hands? He has an abundant supply of arms and he is endeavoring by all methods to accomplish my death. So Calvin took this whole thing as like irony, like almost sarcasm, making fun of uh, this puny little enemy trying to think that they can bring down the Lord's anointed with their implements of death, their mighty sword, their drawn bow, any of that stuff. So this, again, the text is ambiguous, whether this is saying God is going to bring about judgment because God is a warrior and he will go to battle against the enemies of his people who persecute and falsely accuse and seek to overthrow the Sadiq. Or if this is talking about the enemy. Now, one of the reasons that I think this may actually be talking about the enemy, I'm not, I'm, by the way, I'm 50 50 on this. I think you can make a good case for either, but it goes right into the next verses, 14, 15. These are clearly talking about the evildoer, the enemy. It says, Behold, he is birthing evil. He is pregnant with trouble and he is begetting a lie. So, this kind of funny imagery in, in the Hebrew text of verse 15 is, a pregnant man. I mean, it, these are masculine verbs. He is giving birth to Avain, evil. He is pregnant with Amal, trouble or toil, hardship. And he is begetting Yalad, the verb for to give birth to, Shaker. 
a lie or falsehood or deceit. So it could be, I mean, Calvin may be onto something and this could be a continuation kind of mockingly referring to enemies as like pregnant women when they, in fact, they want to be seen as mighty warriors arming themselves for battle. Cause those are sort of two ends of the spectrum in terms of perceived helplessness, a pregnant woman giving birth and a mighty armed warrior for battle. And so there could be something to that maybe, but either way, we are unambiguously back to dealing with the enemy in this section. He is bringing about evil, giving birth, and it's all based on a lie, shaker, a lie. That's what is this whole Psalm is about. And so verse 15, the psalmist is either speaking into being or asking God or sort of in a roundabout way saying, hey, God, make this happen. A pit he dug, and this is like an imagery from hunting, like you maybe to trap an animal, you dig a pit, you scrape it out, but he will fall into a pit of his making. His trouble, this Amal, this that he had been pregnant with, his trouble will return onto his head and upon his skull, his violence will come down. So the psalmist is is either declaring that this is going to happen confidently or or asking God or maybe a little bit of both. This is imprecation. This is speaking harm onto those who are attacking and assailing. And ultimately, that's the fate of those who do evil, is that that evil gets returned on them. It's like a boomerang, the evil that they send out. One day it's going to return on them, not because of some impersonal concept like karma, but because there is a God who judges the righteous, Elohim Sadiq. And that God who judges the righteous is a God who will imprecate, who will declare guilty all day long. Evil won't go unpunished. That's what the psalmist is banking on. And so it ends with a praise, verse 17, I will praise Yahweh according to his righteousness. And there's our word again, Ko. Not katsidki, my righteousness, but katsidko, his righteousness. I will praise Yahweh because of his righteousness, his uprightness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Adonai Elyon, Most High. And when he was preaching on this psalm, uh, Charles Spurgeon made this observation about the imagery that the psalm starts off at. And, and this is such a, you know, the psalm is filled with violence and that troubles a lot of people. But again, this is singing it. This is taking the events of a violent world and bringing them before the God of the universe who sees it all anyway. So there's no need to sanitize. And that's what you don't see in the Psalms. You don't see the type of prayers that you normally find in good upright church settings where people are afraid of sounding unholy or afraid of sounding impious. And so, you, you know, you want to pray with language better than you are. Lord, just be with my enemy, Lord. And, and I know they're killing my family and, and dropping bombs on people who I love and, and kidnapping innocent people. And I know they're, you know, it's like, pray it as if you mean it. And that's what you see in the Psalms. When evil is being experienced, then the psalmist, they don't try to deny the evil. They don't try to rise above the evil and achieve a state of Zen where I'm detached and I no longer suffer because I no longer have any attachment to the world. No, no, that is not the Hebrew Bible. Instead, what they say is, God, I am furious. I am enraged. I am helpless. I feel like I'm being ripped apart and you're asleep. So wake up and do something about it. That's the kind of prayers you see in the Psalms. And even when it's something about slander, like in this case, Spurgeon's words on this passage were great. He says, notice the vigor of the description. 
rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. It's a picture from the shepherd life of David. I mean, David was familiar with things being torn apart by big predatory animals. When the fierce lion had pounced upon the defenseless lamb and had made it his prey, he would rend the victim in pieces, break all the bones, and devour all, because no shepherd was near to protect the lamb or rescue it from the ravenous beast. He goes on to say, A father cannot be silent when a child is in such peril. No, he will not endure the thought of his darling in the jaws of a lion. He will arise and deliver his persecuted one. Our God is very pitiful, and this is a case of older English in the 1800s, pitiful meaning full of pity, not pitiful as in sad. Our God is very pitiful, and he will surely rescue his people from so desperate a destruction. And then he brings it back. It will be well for us here to remember that this is a description of the danger to which the psalmist was exposed from slanderous tongues. Verily, this is not an overdrawn picture, for the wounds of a sword will heal, but the wounds of the tongue can cut deeper than flesh and are not soon cured. Slander leaves a slur, even if it be wholly disproved. Even if you're vindicated, if you've been publicly slandered, your reputation still took a hit. You can never unsay words. Even if you repent and and try to make amends, damage is still done. Even James will talk about this later in the New Testament, how the tongue, it's like a little tiny spark that can flame and destroy an entire forest. That the tongue has life and it has death. And Spurgeon notes this, common fame, although notoriously a common liar, has very many believers. I mean, people are sometimes willing and wanting to believe a lie, especially when it has to do with somebody who's in the public eye. But he goes on to say, once let an ill word get into men's mouths, and it's not easy to get it fully out again. And then he ends the comment on this verse by saying, Oh, tis a meanness most detestable to stab a good man in his reputation. But diabolical hatred observes no nobility in its mode of warfare. We must be ready for this trial, for it will surely come upon us. If God was slandered in Eden, we shall surely be maligned in this land of sinners. Gird up your loins, ye children of the resurrection, for this fiery trial awaits you all. Now, I'm not always a huge fan of Spurgeon, the theologian, but Spurgeon, the preacher, there's a reason, I've said it before, there's a reason he's called the Prince of Preachers. The man could preach and make you think. And this whole psalm, the the vividness that the psalmist is describing the pains of being falsely accused, of being slandered, anyone who's gone through this, this isn't just like, you know, somebody gossiping in the break room. This is somebody whose reputation is is literally being destroyed and people are viciously pursuing them. So words of Cush the Benjaminite are not just your everyday squabbles, but people have been falsely accused. They know exactly the depths of the suffering that this psalm is giving words to, and and the longing for vindication. Not just not having to go through the punishment of whatever you were accused of, but getting the vindication, getting your reputation publicly put right again. That's something we all long for. And it's a reason why slander and libel, knowingly speaking falsehood about people in order to destroy their reputation, there's a reason that the Bible puts that in the same category as murder. It springs from the same evil source. There are two ways we can pray this psalm. One, when we are slandered, like Spurgeon said, hey, 
it's going to happen. Just know that you're going to be spoken ill of intentionally by people who wish you harm. So get ready for it. This psalm gives us the words for those occasions. But another use for this psalm is as we're reading it, think, could anyone be praying these words to God about something that I have said about them or that I have shared on my social media about them? Would anyone be able to pray these words to God against me? That's a sobering thought. So Psalm 7, there's a lot in there. When you when you slow down and read through the psalm and explore some of the imagery in the background, and particularly when you can understand the imagery that the lyrics are trying to portray or the emotion that the lyrics are trying to portray, it really sheds new light on a lot of these psalms that we just sort of gloss over as we're reading. And that's the purpose of this video series. The goal is to see the psalms again with new eyes, to see them in different translations that we may be used to or that we may have memorized. And again, for the purpose of giving us a vocabulary through which to filter our experiences when we're thinking about the world and when we're praying to God. So hopefully these videos are helping you do that in some way. And again, if you've missed our videos on the six Psalms that come before this one, jump on the playlist and check those out. Our goal ultimately is to make it through the entire book and that could take us, well, probably will take us years at this pace, but we're not in a rush. There's no reason to speed through the Psalms. We're gonna savor each one. But that's all for now. Stay tuned. Next episode, we're going to look at Psalm 8. Until then, as always, keep training.